0: Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own.
1: Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Christopher Hurtado
0: and Riley Risto.
1: Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We're by no means experts in the topics we discuss, but what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community.
0: Welcome back to Latter-day Contemplation. I'm Riley Risto. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. We've been away a little while, and we're glad to be back at it. Today we're going to be discussing a... Stoic, a couple of Stoic concepts: uh, consent to destiny, and objectivity. What's been called amor fati. Uh, I guess that was coined by Friedrich Nietzsche, but it, nevertheless, it's a, kind of an adopted Stoic term, right? Yeah, and so we're going to incorporate fate. some, yeah, love of fate, love of what is, loving what
1: is, as Byron Kitty would put it. Yeah. So, although she's coming from a Buddhist perspective, it's
0: very similar. I mean, you, you're you in this frame of existence right now where you just kind of have to love what is, right, Chris? I have no other alternative. I don't get to change it. Yeah, you've been dealing with some some ongoing kind of chronic back pain and not a lot you can do about it, although you've tried. You've done some physical therapy and chiropractic and medication, but uh, it's just still, yeah, you, still hanging around.
1: You make a really good point. There is a lot I can do. But that I don't get to decide whether it works. I get to decide what I do. you know, I still I do the things you know I move i I walk, I bicycle, I swim, I rest, you know, I can do all those things. I go to the chiropractor, I've had this, that, and the other injections. I don't get to decide whether I get well. I only get to decide what I do, and that's very much a stoic
0: concept mm. yeah, no, I love it. I mean, there is a whole um set of people who are of the mindset that. You know, your mind heals your body, and and you can decide to be healthy and all that stuff. I mean, I think it's pretty clear you would like to be, right? Absolutely. Well, again, you can you can choose your course of action.
1: You just can't choose the the result, right? So maybe may, maybe me making that choice, and I am making that choice, and I I make daily affirmations uh, that you know to back that up. But I still don't get to decide whether that actually works or, or in what timetable it actually works. Yeah. I do trust it's working. Everything that I've done is healing me. But no one thing has healed me yet. Right? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and ultimately, there may be larger purpose to this stuff. I mean, one of the things that we do as humans is we try to make meaning out of our circumstances, no matter whether they're good or bad. And And so this is a period of your life where you can look back on it at some point, hopefully, Uh, removed from the situation, um, you know, God willing, and be able to say, exactly, and be able to say that this was a learning experience. Yes. God willing. Okay. Well, so that's it. We're going to talk about that. Uh, Whatever circumstances are besetting you in your life at this time, hopefully this episode will give you a tool or two to be able to approach those with the right frame of mind, the right mindset. And so maybe we start with uh, this consent to destiny, kind of a technical stoic term. What, do, what does that mean, Chris?
1: Yeah, so you have, it, it relates very closely to another concept that we very much want to talk about, which is objectivity. So first, life is coming at you, however it's coming at you. And you don't actually, again, get to decide how life comes at you. But you do get to decide, and this is where I know that there's a, there's a growing, what, what can I say, Riley, how should I put it? Movement? There's a growing movement or agreement about the idea that there is no free will, right? That it's some kind of persistent illusion. You have new atheists like Sam Harris pushing this agenda. Frankl, Victor Frankl, in his landmark book, Man's Search for Meaning, describes his experience as a Auschwitz. It's Auschwitz, right? He's a death camp survivor, whichever death mm-hmm. camp it was, Nazi death camp survivor. Uh, and he tells of his experience of, and I remember Stephen Covey mentioned this too in his book, probably after Frankel, in Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, that there's this space between stimulus and response, and it is in that space that you act freely. So I can't decide what's coming at me, but I can decide how I respond. And the idea, the stoic idea is not to respond emotionally, but to respond objectively. So you sort of freeze frame, you look at what's coming at you, turn it around, look at all sides and make some kind of objective, rational, um, objective determination about it. And the stoics believe this is possible because for them, there is a reason in nature that the reason that is part of that reason in nature that is in you, can actually find it's a way to understand the reason in nature because they're related. It's the same principle, this rational principle, what's called the logos, which, by the way, was a name that was used for, a term that was used for Christ, right, in the New Testament, this rational principle.
0: So the scientific materialist folks, the determinist will have us believe that as soon as the universe you know the big bang happened or whatever happened this this moment zero as soon as that happened that a set of circumstances were set into motion because there's certain amount of energy put into a certain amount of mass and material and it just has to play out a certain way i mean they've got mathematical proofs for all this stuff and i mean even from a mathematical standpoint you look at quantum mechanics, for instance, and there's this observer effect. I'm not sure if that's what it's actually called, but essentially if you take some electrons and you shoot them at a screen and you've got, you know, some, uh, blocking mechanism in front of it, uh, it, the electrons will line up in in an array behind that screen. and, And you can actually see it after the fact, and there will be, you know, one, two, or three different arrays that the electron splits into as a result of being blocked by these two impediments. But when you put a camera on it and it's observed, then the electrons act differently. And I'm not sure if that's a great way to explain it. I'm sure there's mathematicians out there that can do it. But the, the point of it is, is that the observer, in this case just the video camera watching it happen, changes the motion of the electrons. And so if, if we put ourselves into that sort of, you know, relationship or allegory and we say, well, we're the observer, you know, we're the ones that are watching life unfold. And just the fact that we're there and seeing things happen means the universe acts just a little bit differently. And it's not hard to understand that from a personal
1: standpoint, because there's whatever happens let's say there's an accident and there there are bystanders and they witness the accident, we know that if we ask them what happened, that even though one thing happened, you'll get as many different stories about what happened as there are observers, you know, witnesses of the accident. And so that's, that's, I think, a a concrete example of how that works.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And there's the telephone game. That's the same sort of idea, right? Uh, The more a message is transmitted from one to another the more the story changes and and that's the story of history. Same thing. So this consent to destiny, it it sounds like destiny is this, you know, unmovable rolling giant stone down a hill that no one can get in the way of. It just is what it is. But all around this stone rolling down the hill, there are reactions. So it's the response that you're talking about, right? And how we react to that stone coming down the hill is within our control. How we, the stone itself, we have no control over. That thing's going to roll. But, yeah, but
1: to further your analogy, we, right, we could, we could choose to throw a, another stone, a smaller stone, in the path of the larger stone and divert it. Ultimately, it's going to end up somewhere, and somebody's going to have to accept that. But you can see that on the along the way, I have choice. And I could actually divert that that path, right? That's still possible. And mm-hmm. so that's why I act. We would never want anybody to get the impression that to be a Stoic means that you wouldn't act because what's the point uh, when everything is determined? The Stoics do believe that everything is determined, but we don't have to worry about that. As a matter of fact, those kind of questions weren't even dealt with by the most famous Stoics that everybody knows. People know Seneca, Marcus Aurelius, Epictetus. Musonius Rufus is a lesser known uh, you know, Roman Stoic, but most people have never heard of the Greek Stoics, and a lot of their writings don't even come down to us. They were writing about physics. Their their idea of how we should behave, how we should live, how we should act, comes from the way they think that reality works. We can disagree with, how reality, with their con- con- conception of how reality works, and yet we can still choose to act in this way for our own reasons, because we do think that ultimately... What, what ends up being the case isn't entirely up to us. And by the way, that's because everybody else has free will too. That's one reason why. That's one explanation for it. That's why we can't ultimately decide what happens. But whatever happens, we have to be willing to accept it. And that's the idea of consent to destiny or amor fati, as you put it, from Nietzsche. Love of fate. This is my fate and I love it.
0: I mean, so we've got Nietzsche expressing this idea in the 19th century, but this concept is really old. And, and you mentioned the ancient Greeks, and, and, but this exists in Christianity as well. You have this, uh, this moment in the Garden of Gethsemane where Christ says to his Father, If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. You know, it, it's, it's almost like there's space that he's allowing or recognizing for action to take place. And yet at the same time, acknowledging that if there are circumstances beyond his control, he's willing to, um, you know, just live with that.
1: And yeah, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, I consent to destiny. Mm-hmm. Right, I'm a good. It's interesting because the, the stoic ideas and the Christian ideas do actually match up a lot. And it turns out that, the predominant philosophy at the time of Christ was Stoicism. Ro- the Roman religion, as we would call it today, was the philosophy of Stoicism. So there's a little bit of an ambiguation there, right? Let me disambiguate. The philosopher Pierre Adot, who wrote the uh, philosophy as a way of life, the book philosophy as a way of life, which I recommend uh, at least reading the, the the title essay, philosophy as a way of life is an essay within the book that takes the title from the essay. You can download a PDF free. Uh, I've, I've found it just by Googling it. He points out that in antiquity, philosophy was a way of life. Today, philosophy is about, you know, ivory tower cogitations and far removed from the practical everyday life. Whereas you have people like Ryan Holiday, New York Times bestseller, writing books about Stoicism Calling himself a philosopher when he has no training to be a philosopher. This idea of training to be a philosopher to train other philosophers to be philosophers comes from the Middle Ages. In antiquity, philosophy was about my relationship with ultimate reality. That's another word for another way of saying God. If you believe in God, and if you don't believe in God, then there's some other ultimate reality. But the point is, behind all of it, there's something. And so, ultimate reality. I have to deal with and the way that I deal with it nowadays we call that religion in antiquity it was called philosophy for them what they called religion for us looks more like support the troops USA USA support the troops right or wrong by the way it's about the relationship of man to the state whereas philosophy is about the relationship of man with ultimate reality so that's more like our religion today and these two philosophies or religions if, if they uh, are coexisting at the same time, I don't know whether one was influenced by the other, but I do know that Seneca and Jesus are born around the same time, some, sometime between 6 and 4 BCE, and that they're both Stoics, even though one calls himself a Stoic and the other calls himself a Christian. Just kidding, he doesn't call himself a Christian, but you know what
0: I mean. Well, I like what that you bring up that you know philosophy in, in antiquity was really a practice. It was a way of life. And it wasn't a way of thinking; it was a way of doing. And and we still have those people today. You, you mentioned Ryan Holiday, but you know Byron Katie's another one that we've had some particular interest in lately in reading her stuff. And you've incorporated some of that into the Come Follow Me podcast um, with with Ben Peterson. But Byron Katie puts out this article, and and she has this what she calls the way, right? Isn't it, is it the way or is it uh, the work? The work. That's right. Sorry, it's the work.
1: Yeah. And she is a Buddhist but Buddhism and Stoicism are a lot alike. And I don't know, you know, we know that Socrates, one of the ingredients in Stoicism is Socrates. Another ingredient is Heraclitus. And I mentioned Heraclitus in the Proverbs podcast uh, for, you know, on our Come Follow Me podcast. So we don't know if there's an influence from Buddhism to Stoicism or the other way around, but I can give you an, a, a parallel example. We only recently found that there's uh, some kind of connection between ancient skepticism, Pyronic skepticism, and uh, Hinduism. You know, there's some kind of relationship there. And and Buddhism comes out of Hinduism. There's a lot of contact, you know, based on commerce uh, across that part of the world, you know, those parts of the world. We think Socrates traveled to India, but we don't know all these details. But The fact is, her concept is very much like the Stoic concept. Hmm. Loving what is. That means embracing destiny,
0: right? Amor fati. Well, and also as a practice to incorporating objectivity with action, it's evaluating the circumstances that come before you and asking yourself questions about those and then, you know, reacting as after having evaluated the the fundamental nature of the circumstances confronting you. So, the first question she asks is, "Is it true? Is what?" So here is comes what the, yeah, this thing's coming at. Here you. comes
1: something at me, right? Yeah. It, but is it is it true? One of my favorite examples from her book, "Loving What Is," Riley, and I recommend listeners listen to the book because it turns out it's a it's actually a live dialogue. That if you buy the book, you're just getting a transcription. Whereas if you buy the audiobook, you're actually getting the dialogue. And this woman says her kids are throwing their clothes on the floor. And there's usually some kind of judgment at the beginning of this whole process, which is my kids shouldn't. It's implied even if I don't say it. They shouldn't throw their clothes on the floor. And Byron Katie shows up in this tender. She's just so sweet. She just says, sweetheart, pause that's what kids do. (laughs) You just, that's what they do. Yeah. So it's that key word shouldn't, right? Yeah. You say they, they shouldn't throw their clothes on the floor. Well, Riley brings up the first question. Is it true? And of course she says, yes. Yeah, it's true. They shouldn't. They shouldn't throw their clothes on the floor. What's the next question, Riley? The next question is, can you absolutely know that it is true? Now, sometimes if someone's stubborn, you have to ask this question more than once. And this may be you, by the way. You might have to ask yourself this question more than once. Yes, I absolutely know it's true. Well, okay. At some point, we have to realize if you're really, if you have any kind of epistemological humility, you realize you can't know that that's true. By the way, evidence is to the contrary because they're doing it. (laughs) So if I admit, okay, no, I can't
0: absolutely know it's true. Now what? Well, now you have to make a decision. You know, how do you react? What happens when you believe the thought? So this question is about
1: if I believe what I'm saying, they shouldn't throw the clothes on the floor, then how do I react? It makes me upset. It just bugs me that they're doing it. And, and see, the point we're getting at here is if you didn't say they shouldn't throw their clothes on the floor, then you wouldn't be bugged. And this brings up a really important point about stoicism, the point of stoicism, we haven't mentioned that, Riley. The point of Stoicism is what they would call ataraxia, which is just a Greek term that translates undisturbedness. My goal as a Stoic is to be undisturbed, right? To be, and and this is what we think of in today's dictionary definition of Stoicism. We see someone who is just unmoved by the by the events, whether someone dies or whether something happens. They're just calm, cool, and collected. Yeah, I love that. So. And I don't feel calm, cool, and re- collected when I believe my kids shouldn't throw their clothes on the floor, and they do, because I have this unmet expectation. And so the idea is to manage your expectations since you can't manage other people's actions.
0: Well, and it helps us to place properly, let's call it the blame for our emotions where they belong. And that's back at at the belief that something should or should not happen. It's the exactly. belief that causes the the negative emotion. It's not the... It's not the action of the child that leaves his clothes on the floor. It's the belief that the child shouldn't leave his clothes on the floor, and he's doing it anyway, that causes this negative emotion in us. And so if we change our mindset about what should or shouldn't happen, and especially if we do it based on evidence, as you said, <laughs> evidence to the contrary, kids leave their clothes on the floor all around the world.
1: Yeah, exactly. And and so if I'm willing to accept, if I'm willing to admit, rather, that how I react when I believe kids shouldn't throw their, throw their clothes on the floor and they do, then what's your next question? This is according to Katie Byron's The Work, right?
0: Yeah. Who or what would you be without the thought? And that's what you've been getting at all along, Riley. right? Yeah. Yeah, that you, it, once you've identified that it's the thought that creates the negative emotion, you you then have a choice there too. It's like can I can I just change my thinking and change my mood? <laughs> yeah.
1: Hey, by the way, Riley, I didn't mention this. I I think you know this, but for the listener, you know, Byron Katie is Stephen Mitchell's wife. Yeah. This is the Stephen it's a Mitchell power couple. the poet <laughs> the poet translator I love, they really are. Oh man. By the way, let's go into Byron's uh Katie's story a little bit because it turns out She suffered tremendously for a decade with deep depression. I mean, she was one of these people with the blinds drawn and couldn't get out of bed and food and tissues everywhere. I mean, you can just picture the scene and she suffered and she put an end to her own suffering through what she calls the work. And you just did it. There's actually one more step, uh, Riley, the turnaround, the final step.
0: Is the turnaround. I'll just read this section. It says a statement can be turned around to the self, to the other, and to the opposite. For example, and she uses this Paul that she was using as an example before. Paul should understand me, turns around to, I should understand me. I should understand So I should throw the
1: kids' clothes on the floor? Uh, That's a turnaround. Yeah, it is a turnaround. turnaround. Yeah, it is. I should throw the kids' clothes on the floor. Yeah. Well, look, imagine, imagine my kids still do this. Okay, I've got teens. They're actually washing the clothes. They're taking the freshly washed clothes and throwing them on the floor in a pile where they will then deal with them. Okay, so I've told them all their lives, don't throw clean clothes on the floor. You just wash them. You shouldn't. They say you shouldn't should on people. I have to admit, I, I did do that to my kids a lot. I, to, I told them you shouldn't throw your clothes on the floor. They're clean and the floor is not clean. What if I just said, well, I guess, you know, if that's how they're going to put them away, they got to go on the floor first. Why don't I just walk in there? If I'm the one taking them out of the dryer and just dump them in a pile on the floor, then they'll know what to do next.
0: <laughs> hmm.
1: That's what they're going to do anyway. They're going to throw them on the floor and then they're going to sort them and put them away from there. So I should throw the kids clothes on the floor. What about to so that's to the self? What about to the other? Paul shouldn't
0: understand me or Paul shouldn't in, in understand. Case, yeah. yeah. So, the kids instead should the clothes on the floor well or, or the you shouldn't expect the kids to understand you well this they're is, not this adults. isn't about
1: this isn't about understanding Paul. This is about the kids throwing the clothes on the floor the so the turnaround for the kids throwing the clothes on the floor, the first one is I should throw the kids on the floor kids clothes on the floor. The second <laughs> one is the kids should throw the kids' clothes on the floor, and finally, i don't know that the examples are different Paul shouldn't understand me is different from. The, cl- the kids shouldn't put the clothes where they belong. You just, you find different ways because you realize your interpretation is not reality. That's the point of the exercise, right? The point of the exercise is there's reality and there's your interpretation of reality. And going back to the Stoics, I can't decide who's my favorite Stoic, Riley. Sometimes I say Musonius Rufus because I do think he's really cool and uh, nobody knows him. So I, I can stand out, right? I can be different. I don't pick Marcus Aurelius or Seneca, or, or, but I love all the Stoics. Uh, but, you know, the Enchiridion, the manual of uh, Epictetus begins by making a distinction between some things, there are some things you have control over, some things you don't. And then it mentions within your control are things, basically what you do, the things that you do. And without your control, not within your control, it's everything else. It actually says everything else. And so then it tells you, you should focus on the former, not the latter, meaning focus on the things that are in your control and stop trying to control things that are really beyond your control. The, the Alcoholics Anonymous prayer comes from this concept, very much a stoic concept. Help me to accept the things, you know, that I can't change and to change the things that I can change. That's a paraphrase.
0: Yeah. So, you know, if we go back to the, the kids throwing their, their stuff on the floor the 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 real question to ask the turnaround in this case is, you know, kids should throw their stuff on the floor, and then it's a matter of just making a decision for yourself. And there's a couple ways to approach it. You can try to influence the circumstances that that influence kids to throw their their clothes on the floor so you can offer incentives or disincentives for them to do so or it can just change your mind completely and you accept the fact that kids do this and you clean it up happily as a as a matter of service so there's just it's just a way to kind of change your mindset about how circumstances cause various moods or feelings within you for you know for good or evil
1: One of the things I learned from observing one of my mentors, so it's not something that he said or, you know, explicitly taught me. Sometimes our teachers teach us by their actions without even, they're just doing what they do, right? Without even intending to teach. And I I also noticed it just by observing myself, and that is that if you're the one who cares about the mess, you're the one who's going to have to clean it up. Because the reality is the other people aren't saying there shouldn't be a mess here. So why would they think they need to do anything to clean it up, right? If you're the one who thinks things shouldn't be the case, then do something about it. I remember I would complain my students when I taught philosophy at Utah Valley University. Students were supposed to know how to write before they came to me. Of course, look, look at what I just did. They're supposed to, right? They should know how to write. They were required to take a writing class. I thought they should know how to write, you know, if they if they took the writing class. This was, again, my expectation is unrealistic because that's just not how things are. I have to accept the way things are. But I did at one point, I, instead of complaining, I decided that I would become a part of the solution instead of just complaining about the problem. And I said, sign me up to teach English. And I started teaching English at Salt Lake Community College to teach students how to write. That's one thing I could do. I had no control over whether or not they could write. Uh, I could, I could keep them from my class if they hadn't taken the class, but what if they took the class and they still couldn't write? That was very typical. Nothing I could do about it except to either take some of my class time away from philosophy to teach writing or to go teach writing to the students who
0: haven't gone to philosophy yet. Well, and this points, you know, directly to DNC 120 that, that talks about the difference between coercion and persuasion. You know, they're, they're, we can have certain beliefs about what people should or shouldn't do and, you know, inflict punishments based on the beliefs that we have about, you know, those various actions. Or we can try to make the world just slightly better by making, or not making, but uh, persuading people to want to do those things that we want them to do. So that's, that's using positive influence. That's using patient instruction. And being a part of the solution rather than just complaining about the circumstances.
1: Yeah, you know, complaining about the circumstances is not stoic, and it's very much another LDS concept that that comes to my mind is this idea of kicking against the pricks. If you're complaining about the about reality, which is as it is, because it is that it is, and it will be what it will be, and and that's exactly what the ultimate reality we believe in. Uh, that's the the God of Israel, right? Which who says, "I am that I am, I will be what I will be," and that's just ultimate reality. That's the case. That's the answer to Job. God's answer to Job is, "I am that I am. I just do what I do. I be what I be, and whatever ideas you had about what should be or shouldn't be, have nothing to do with me. That's your. That's you trying to impose." that things should be or shouldn't be a certain way. His idea of justice, Job's idea of justice that he's trying to impose on God. Rather, I think we should have a conversation about justice sometime. Justice is another Stoic concept, but I want to expand the conversation about justice into something more than just what the Stoics thought about justice. So we'll have to revisit that. No,
0: I can't wait to do that. that, I think that's one that'll be coming up pretty quick.
1: Yeah, but just to mention the Stoic concept of justice, it is really that you treat others in a way that recognizes, this is very much, again, uh, akin to Christianity. Christianity and Stoicism are, are very much alike in different ways, uh, in many different ways. There are two books, at least two books that I know of, book-length treatments of Stoicism and Christianity and their similarities. And so the idea is, I recognize that that rational principle that is in me is also in you. And so therefore, I treat you as I would be treated. And you know, I treat you with the respect and the dignity that you deserve as a fellow human being who embodies that same rational principle that is at the head of the universe and that is in you and in me. That imago dei, the Christians would call it, right? That that image of God that is within you. So that's the point of, um, that's the where stoic justice comes from, is that realization.
0: Mm.
1: And so it's very much becomes do unto <clears throat> others as you would have done unto you. Another Stoic concept that I'll just mention here as an aside is very much uh, something that Jesus teaches is this idea that your polis, or your city or community, is the whole cosmos, cosmopolitanism. So before Jesus, you know, if you think of the ancient Israelites, Yahweh is their tribal God. And so it's very much a nationalistic narrative that you get through most of the Bible, all of, you know, the the pentateuch and even the the early prophets right the deuteronomistic historians everything from genesis through second chronicles in the christian bible but then you get these international writings in the wisdom writings and there and then jesus gives us more of this international uh, character idea feeling which is just that we're all brothers this isn't just you know for For Jews, this message, this good news, this gospel of Jesus Christ is for the whole world. It's for all humans. Very much a Stoic concept, this cosmopolitanism. Marcus Aurelius, while he did as emperor, philosopher, he's their philosopher king, right? Uh, Plato's ideal. He does fight on the northern borders of the empire against the Germanic tribes as, you know, Roman emperor. But he knows and he writes while he's fighting these battles. This is when he writes his meditations, the famous uh, writings, which are to himself, the original title, Ton He Auton, to himself, not really a book, but now it's a book. You're reading the emperor's diary, his personal diary, his journal. And he writes, you know, as Antoninus, I'm a Roman. But as, you know, as a philosopher, he
0: realizes he's a citizen of the world. Well, I love that. I mean, you, When you think about Christ, it's very much... The, the same model he knows who he is and, and yet he recognizes that all around him are people who don't know who they are. and so rather than try to command them into obedience, he puts forth this example and, and you know it's ironic that the way that Marcus Aurelius does it is to lead them into battle, but you can take that again as as a metaphor for life you know you, you show the example you're leading your disciples into the battle of life. It, it can just be an extended metaphor. And so Christ, rather than just preaching obedience, an obedience model of improvement, he, and by the way, I think I said it was DNC 120, but it's 121 where it talks about, you know, coercion and persuasion and which of those is, is the better of the two. Rather than, than setting up this obedience model that's based on, you know, coercive, um, Penalties and again, justice is there's this conflation of justice with punishment, when justice is really about healing. And and so a a model of justice that is based on obedience or disobedience and and punishment or blessing, is one that there's no evidence for in this world. Let's just be honest. All around us, when people are obedient you don't always see a positive outcome in their life all around us when people are disobedient you don't always see them being punished and and so it just doesn't play out in reality
1: so if you're if you're job you you say god you shouldn't punish me
0: <laughs> right, <laughs> right? I, I didn't do anything wrong right yeah. and well and, 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 and so yeah. he this is a microcosm he's he's a metaphorical example of this philosophy playing out that so many people have is that why am i being punished if i'm doing the right things job's a perfect man and yet the worst things possible are happening to him boils all over his body losing his family and his wealth everything bad is happening to job even though he's a perfect man it's a perfect metaphor for christ because he also is this archetypal perfect man and yet everything bad is happening to him everything bad that's possible he suffers in this, you know, extended metaphor of life. And so he's pointing the way not through an obedience model, which doesn't play out. I mean, this is, this is what's being illustrated by Christ, by Job. It doesn't play out that obedience necessarily leads to blessings, right? And so instead he's pointing us to a model of experience. You look, you, you confront circumstances as they are and you, you react to them in the best way possible.
1: Through acceptance, he's really showing us the the concept of Stoic uh, consent to destiny.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's acceptance,
1: accepting, it's you know, surrendering to to the will of the divine, of ultimate reality. Whatever the whatever your concept of it is, whether you're Stoic or Christian, that concept differs. But either way, you have this ultimate reality that you submit to, mm-hmm. that and and you do this out of a sense of you know, of duty and stoicism and a different concept in Christianity would be out of love, right? But it is very much, but you know, you see people doing, uh, doing Christianity. I was going to say, you know, submitting to, to God out of fear, out of obedience, out of, but it, it just shows you, I think it shows an error in the in the concept of who and what God is, which is fundamental. You know, Joseph Smith taught us that that understanding the true nature of God was fundamental to to all of life, really.
0: I think the the main question to ask here is: Would we have Christ without His suffering? Would we have, you know, the Dalai Lama without the invasion of Tibet? Would we have Byron Katie without her depression? these people don't emerge out of a vacuum you know preformed as these gurus it doesn't work that way so this idea of consent to destiny is what creates exceptional humans it's how we react to the circumstances that that confront us that determines who we become and so our our potential is really bound up in our in our trials.
1: Powerfully put Riley. If our social media manager is listening, let's somebody quote Riley and stick it in a quote image. And then edit that part out where he just
0: said that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, But, but really it comes down to when, when you've accepted your circumstances and you've decided that you're going to make the best of it, whether it's just a pure learning experience with a lot of pain and suffering or whether it, you know, the experience creates in you a person who can then magnify his calling, so to speak, in this life and and be better able to exercise his vocation, then I mean, that's how we make the most of life.
1: This is a powerful principle. I already feel like I'm going to have a better day today just for having had this conversation with you, Riley, and we're recording uh, in the morning which is hasn't been our modus operandi and it's because of my back (laughs) we changed the time because of my back and i'm reminded of the time that i taught a what was it 30 minutes every weekday uh, going over marcus aurelius's meditations you know going through that uh, guiding some students through it i remember one particular student told me that she felt like she started her day with a shot in the arm from marcus aurelius and like she had him with her, the emperor was with her. She would say all day, and mm. right? she felt like she had him there with him. And this is the idea, right? To hold up um, as as a, as Christians, you know, Jesus as a model. Right? And she was doing that with Marcus Aurelius, uh, a worthy model in in the context in which she did. You know, I prefer I prefer Jesus's, I think, stronger commitment to cosmopolitanism. He he didn't bifurcate himself into two right into i'm antoninus on the one hand and fighting the germanic tribes on the northern borders of the empire pushing my Pax romana uh which is the idea of uh this concept this roman concept of peace through victory whereas jesus gives us a new concept of peace through justice and that's why this justice conversation is one we have to have really
0: yeah or or even just uh, personal peace through surrender or, yeah. or acceptance oh yeah you know, I got into an extended conversation with uh, a couple of friends of mine this last week. Um, one initially, and then the other one was sort of explaining the first to another friend. But this this idea that we've constructed, or the many ideas that we've constructed about atonement that are based on an obedience model of existence, they they create, or well, they they negate the opportunity for us to fully realize the potential that's latent within circumstances out of our control that we don't want but nevertheless they they steal you they make you a better person i I don't have a whole lot of um I'm not gonna say respect but I mean it's not like I look up to people who have had the easy road their whole life I look up to people who have come through things and come out the other side you know much stronger and and I think that's true for everyone right and and so while we're in the moment, we never like to experience the things that are causing us pain or anguish mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally. We don't like that stuff. But it's always with hindsight, we can look back and say, that made us stronger. That made us better. Yeah. That made us more relatable.
1: Yeah. You know, that reminds me of another stoic concept, which is some people, many people, think that the stoics are emotionless and and you get this sense that what what is meant is they really don't even care one way or the other if even you know their children would die in their sleep you know because the the stoics in their writings i think it's marcus aurelius who says when you kiss your child good night you know say to yourself they may not wake up in the morning and it just seems morbid um at times they seem morbid at times they seem uncaring and these are really misreadings. They're misunderstandings. The Stoics have the, a distinction. It's sometimes it's all about distinctions. Distinc- Philosophy is full of distinctions. And distinctions can be really powerful. Again, that distinction between what's in my control and what's not in my control. Powerful distinction. The distinction here is between what's preferable and, 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 so, and, and what's not preferable. And so the Stoic would prefer that his child wake up in the morning he would prefer that his wife wouldn't die but he's not going to let the fact that the that something happen even if it's the death of a child or a spouse stop him from doing what he does to be a good person he also doesn't really mind if anybody realizes or admits or acknowledges that he's a good person that's another concept from stoicism right this idea that that again it's within my control what i do it's not within my control whether anybody notices that I do it. So I can be a good person and people can, can say I'm a bad person. I have no control over that. I only have control over who I am. And so people are going to think whatever they're going to think. But I'm going to, I'm going to do my best to do my duty to, to do what is right. Which, but, which, again, the stoic concept of justice, of acting Justly toward uh, my fellow man is a big part of that. Whether or not anyone recognizes it, and and if uh, if they have a review, you know, it, as I learned as a professor, you know, rate my professor, go check it out, Christopher Hurtado, UVU, Salt Lake Community College. There are students who loved me. There are students who hated me. There's very rarely anywhere anyone anywhere in between, and that has nothing to do with me, right? You know, some say you could not approach him and get help. Others say he was so approachable and you could always get help. And you realize I'm the same person. I'm reminded of Eugene England. Eugene England, the uh, LDS philosopher in his own right, even though he was an English professor at BYU, he was teaching at UC Berkeley and he was teaching institute across the street from UC Berkeley. And he would cross the street from Teaching Institute over to UC Berkeley, and they would say, here comes that conservative Mormon guy. And he would cross the street from UC Berkeley to the Institute building, and they would say, here comes that liberal Berkeley guy. And Eugene England, just in the middle of the road, saying, hey, I'm just Eugene England. I just am that I am, and I do what I do.
0: Do we feel, we still feel compelled to explain ourselves, though, right? I mean, because, like, we we might do something that we're satisfied with, and let's just break it down to something very basic. We're we're at home, and there's a bit of a mess, and so we step up and we we clean some things, and then another person walks in, our spouse or whoever, and, and says, "This place is this place is a disaster." Maybe you left the dishes out, or maybe you didn't sweep the floor or whatever, or put the clothes away after the laundry was folded. But this place is a disaster, and and you know we still feel compelled to explain ourselves. Well, I mean, I didn't do nothing. I, I wiped the tables down and I, I emptied the dishwasher and I folded the laundry and, and you feel compelled to justify yourself. Is that a positive response to, 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 to do that? Or is it, is it something we should just leave alone and kind of sit with the moment and, and let the other person work out their emotions. Maybe the other person just starts cleaning and gets more and more worked up and angry at everyone else who, who isn't cleaning and are we okay just to sit there with that or should we help the other person along should we try to explain ourselves like those kind of real world circumstances what's what's the good reaction there you
1: know the first thing that occurs to me to say about a situation like that is that again the stoic concept is to recognize that no matter what you have done or haven't done if you've done what you think is right that was up to you whether someone recognizes it or not. Isn't right? There's that. If you try to defend yourself to answer more directly your question, I think there's an there's a an admission somehow that you're a victim. Because if you're not a victim, then why do you have to defend yourself?
0: Or it's and an admission so, that maybe you didn't do enough. Sure. Maybe you're like subconsciously and, and point, admitting to yourself, "Oh, did I really? You know? Because yeah, I'm not satisfied."
1: Yeah, and at that point, stoic objectivity has to kick in and say, well, this other person raises a valid point. I didn't do that, and then you do it. Or, you know, I I feel like I I did do my duty, and um, they don't recognize it, and that's out of my control. Hmm. I don't know where to go from here. (laughs) Check your notes, Riley. (laughs) So coming back to the idea of objectivity, right, which is what we're really trying to determine here, what's the what's objective? So somebody's coming at me, you know, with an emotional response, and I could have an emotional response to that too. But what the stoics are teaching is no, you let your rational part rule over your emotional side. You let the, you let reason rule over emotion. And this is very much a concept that probably comes from Socrates. As I mentioned, Socrates is one of the ingredients that goes into Stoicism. You have Socrates, Heraclitus, and virtue, you know, the, the idea of virtue. There, there are different ingredients from ancient philosophy that come together and produce a new philosophy that comes on the scene, you know, like Stoicism. Stoicism, by the way, comes from the Stoa Poikile, which is the painted porch where Zeno the Stoic met his students, and that's why it to this day, we call it Stoicism. They were the ones who met by the Stoapokile. So this idea of objectivity is, I need to, again, observe what's coming at me and not take it at face value. This is the contemplative part, rightly right? Because you don't just take things as they come without any kind of filter. You, you apply reason intentionally as a filter. You say, let me see what's coming at me. Let me evaluate it objectively. What's really going on here? Where is this really coming from? And let me then respond to that rather than respond emotionally to what's an emotional, uh, not necessarily an attack, but something coming at you, right? That's that's. When I say coming at you, it doesn't have to be an attack, right? It's just whatever life throws at you and whatever way it comes at you.
0: Well, and it seems to me that there's an element here or an ingredient of recognizing that we do live in, in society. In, in our life is not fully individual. We can look at a situation and say, oh, I did enough there, but that doesn't actually do anything to ameliorate the the tension between two individuals or a group of individuals or more, mm-hmm. or more right? So at, at a certain point, you have to recognize that I am part of community and there is a response of some sort that's demanded if we want the situation to improve. And it's just figuring out what that response is that not only is going to uh, explain why it is you feel, you know, satisfied with your effort, for instance, but also to, you know, bring the other person into a a better relationship with you in regards to those efforts. And so it might be something along the lines of. Uh, I can see that you're disturbed or I can see that, you know, you're, you're kind of emotional about this. Just so you know, I'm, I'm willing to help you. I feel like I did some things and I was satisfied with my effort, but I I see that that wasn't enough. In your opinion, I would be happy to contribute additional efforts. You know, no one talks this way, obviously in a relationship, but like it would just be interesting to figure out how best to respond to situations like yeah. that where number one, you are satisfied with your effort initially, but recognizing that you're part of a a dynamic that's not just yeah. completely individual.
1: Yeah, well, talk is cheap anyway, right, Riley? I mean, what you want to do is act this way. And if you feel like you have to say something, sometimes that's just that's a chance for you to recognize that you're just you know, you're trying to defend yourself. But you just said that you were satisfied. So you have nothing to defend, but you can, of course, go the extra mile. It's very much a stoic concept. This brings me back to the stoic concept of justice and altruism, right? It is really is the idea of do unto others as you would have done unto. So, so you know, I, I, you probably did that uh, when you did the cleanup that you did. But this other person has a different concept of cleanup, and you can actually meet that expectation from a place of I would like to do unto others as they would have done unto them. Sometimes we make that corrective, right? Instead of doing unto others as you would have done unto you. I mean, maybe everybody doesn't want me to buy them a book. I keep doing that because that's what I would have done unto me. Maybe, maybe I could re- realize that Riley would prefer
0: uh, a new boat. Well, and the Christian, the Christian ideal in this situation is to respond with humility to those desires of those that are around us. It, when you said go the extra mile, that's pulled directly from if you're compelled to go a mile, go with him twain, go that extra mile. And and so the Christian ideal is, hey, you might be satisfied with your effort, but if someone else is not, well, go with him twain, give him an extra mile. It, it's it's a service mindset that goes beyond your level of satisfaction with your own effort. So stoically, from a stoic perspective, you can say, I'm totally fine with what I just gave there effort yeah. wise or whatever and and someone else is like, no, I'm not good with that. Okay. I'll give more. And, and just and the, go the Stoicism
1: with it. has something for that too, right? Again, very similar to Christianity. Exactly the same as Christianity, really, because altruism is is another part of that answer, right? Justice and altruism are the are the guiding principles in Stoicism to our actions. When we act, we should act out of justice and out of and without going into justice again, saving that for another episode. There is this idea of that you've pointed out of being altruistic, of doing it for the other Hmm. to satisfy. I mean, Jesus did this ultimately. Ultimately, Riley, Jesus satisfies our sense of justice with this altruistic self-sacrifice that, can I say, isn't necessary? I mean, for the longest time, I puzzled over this. What is this atonement? What does it do? And I really sat with that question as a philosopher for over a decade and had very few conversations with anyone other than fellow philosophers. didn't talk to my kids about it or my wife. I talked to Shiloh. I talked to mentors who who are my philosophy professors. And ultimately, I came up with with an answer that I found out recently is in Hebrews. According to Rob Bell in his sermon on YouTube, the gods aren't angry, it is... Explained in Hebrews that Jesus does do what he does to satisfy not God, not some cosmic principle, but us, our sense of justice. And that's why, again, we've got to have this conversation about justice.
0: Well, I think that'll tee us up for the next episode. I'm excited to do that, Um, whether it's justice or some other concept, but we'll get to that soon. So this has been fun. I mean, we've been able to you know, kind of tease out some some stoic ideas and relate them back to our own Christian discipleship. And um, it gives us something to think about as we we go throughout our lives is, you know, how much control do we really have? And is control really the thing that matters anyway? Is it more about experience? And how can we live a a more satisfied, you know, um, happy even life? despite the circumstances that uh, beset us and and stoicism has a lot of those answers
1: there's a resurgence again in in stoicism today ryan holiday is one of the people at the forefront of it with the books he's writing he got uh, exposed to stoicism by asking someone when he was a student journalist you know a journalist for a student paper and was recommended you know marcus aurelius's meditations and i think he bought also so he could you know, get $25 in free shipping back then, either the Enchiridion of Epictetus or some, something from Seneca, right? Seneca has essays, letters, the letters from a Stoic. Excellent. I, I usually tell people, if you read the letters from a Stoic, the, the first letter, and you're not blown away and want to keep reading, then I'll give you your money back for the book. I can't make that kind of offer here in a public forum, but one on one i've told many people that and i've never had anybody ask for their money back
0: never have you when when you read letters from a stoic and you know i've read it and do you get the same feeling you get when you read for instance the letters between john adams and thomas jefferson that, that they know posterity's going to read this <laughs> Yeah,
1: sure. These letters uh, are purport to be to the person that they're written to, right. but they're really <laughs> meant to be read by the general public. So you have Letters from a Stoic is a famous uh, book by Seneca, a collection of, of actual letters with the caveat that although they are actual letters, they really are to you as much as they are to whoever is being addressed. You have the Meditations of Marcus Aurelius. You have the Enchiridion of Epictetus, and check out Musonius Rufus. Musonius Rufus, uh, his writings have been translated and published only recently into English. Uh, I think there's one called that we, we should disdain hardship or something like that, and another one that's you know, collected sayings and maxims or something. He's one of the aphoristic writers relating back to the Proverbs conversation on our sister podcast.
0: On the other one I just read was on the shortness of life at another Seneca One of his
1: essays, yeah. Very, very famous essay. What's the punchline in that one, Riley? You know, that life is not
0: short. Well, time itself is, is, you know, sort of just a construct. It's really about just the experiences of life. Yeah.
1: Well, we leave you with those reading recommendations and with the concepts that we've shared from Stoicism. And from from early Christianity, reminding us that these these two religions or philosophies, again, depending on whether you're using the ancient or the modern terms, are very much alike. And and they have a lot to offer us and that you can clarify your conception of Stoicism through Christianity and you can clarify your conception of Christianity through Stoicism. I think you can do that. Um, This is one of the reasons that we explore on this podcast different traditions so that we can get different angles on the same subjects right
0: yeah well just to augment and improve our own spiritual practice and beliefs and and the way we interact with our fellow man so well if you've enjoyed this episode we encourage you to give us a like give us a share throw a comment out there reach out to us individually if you like on facebook messenger you can join our Uh, Latter-day Peace Studies Facebook group. Uh, We have a a page there that shares, you know, some uplifting thoughts. And um, of course, I've got my Lectio Divina group. If you're into that, Uh, we've got all kinds of ways to interact with us. And we encourage you to do that. If you have any ideas to share with us that you'd like to hear about, we are always open to that as well. So um, yeah, reach out to us. We appreciate uh, interacting with our audience.
1: Yeah, I very much enjoy hearing from from listeners. I do hear from listeners. It's been especially touching, you know, to hear from listeners as I've struggled with with my back pain, you know, as I've been absent, I've heard from listeners. I appreciate that. Thank you for listening. And thank you to our volunteers, those who uh, edit the podcast, those who put out the, the quote images on social media. The thanks to you, Riley, for showing up and, and, you know, podcasting with me. It's been a great conversation.
0: Well, for Latter-day Contemplation, I'm Riley Risto. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. Have a great week, everyone.